The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good evening, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.07. It is Tuesday, September 16th, and on behalf of the EOT team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Nick Savage. Before we get started tonight, I just want to let everyone know that we have updated our podcasts as of this morning, so you should be able to find both of our episodes that we've had since the start of this school year on your favorite podcast manager or on our blog at blog.wknc.org. Tonight, we bring you an interview with Sarah Bowen, an associate professor of sociology here at NC State and co-author of a recent study about the idea of a home-cooked family meal. And the conclusions might surprise you. In addition, we have coverage on the voting restrictions that will be affecting North Carolinians in under a month, and of course, your weekly happenings around campus. But first, let's find out what's in the news beyond the headlines. This Week in News on Eye on the Triangle. A brief rundown of the latest news. According to new data in regards to the Amazon rainforest recently released by the Brazilian government, the world's largest rainforest experienced destruction last year at rates nearly 30% more than the year before. Up to an estimated 17% of the Amazon has been lost in the past 50 years, mainly due to cattle ranching, which causes ranchers to create large clearings for grazing. Even though the destruction increased in 2013, the Brazilian report did show that it was the second lowest annual figure of deforestation since it began tracking the losses in 2004. A symbolic nationwide hunger strike began in Egypt on Saturday, September 13th to demand the freedom of detainees arrested for violating a law passed in Egypt last year that restricts people's rights to protest. The 23 people that have inspired the strike were arrested this past June while condemning the law in Cairo. The professed protest law was passed in November 2013 under the then interim president Adli Mansour and prevents any protests from occurring without prior police notification. Only 26 people have been saved thus far after a boat from Libya heading to Europe sunk off the Libyan coast Sunday, September 14th. There were as many as 250 migrants on board and those yet to be rescued are suspected to be dead. Refugees have been leaving Libya for years now mainly since Muammar Gaddafi was toppled in 2011. More than 100,000 migrants have reached Italy just this year, but many have instead been subjected to human traffickers, taking advantage of the political chaos and lack of security Libya is still experiencing. A fourth doctor from Sierra Leone has passed away due to Ebola this past Sunday, September 14th. Her death now brings a collective health care worker death toll up to 144. When Olivette Buck was first diagnosed on Tuesday, September 9th, it was suspected that she contracted the disease while treating a patient. It led to numerous people calling for her evacuation to the West. The president of Sierra Leone had also written to the World Health Organization requesting evacuation. But the organization, despite not declining outright, stated that it could only evacuate those that it had deployed. The WHO and other organizations have admitted to underestimating the severity of the epidemic, but have stated that they have begun to redouble their efforts. Since the outbreak began in early March of this year, 
Ebola has infected at least 4,000 and has killed more than 2,400. This strain has a mortality rate of about 50%. The upcoming vote this Thursday, September 18th in Scotland will determine if the country will continue to be a part of the United Kingdom as it has been since the creation, three, its creation 300 years ago, or if it will become an independent nation. Recent polls have shown that, despite the vote initially appearing highly improbable, the Yes campaign and the anti-independence camps are at, virtu- are at a virtual tie. Independence would commence March 24, 2016, if the majority voted for independence, leaving about 18 months for the then-independent Scottish government to authorize details for the new country. If Scotland does become independent, it would have the chance to resurrect its national identity. But secession could also lead to many economic setbacks that could affect currency, taxes, and pensions. Back to you, Nick. Thanks, Sydney. And now we have an interview brought to us by our contributor, Sarah, featuring research done by some professors right here at NC State. According to their study, it turns out that the concept of the family meal might do more harm than good. Here's Here's Sarah's discussion. Joining me in the studio today is Sarah Bowen. She is an associate professor of sociology here at NC State, and she's coming today to talk to us about her most recent study called The Joy of Cooking, which she co-authored with Seneca Elliott. Welcome to the studio, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Could you please tell me about some of the findings of your study and what was the goal of it? Well, this is part of a bigger project called Voices into Action, It's a research and extension outreach project, and the overall goal of the big project is to look at all of the factors that complicate people's ability to feed their families. So we're interviewing mothers of young children and also doing some community-based participatory action work in three counties in North Carolina, Lee, Harnett, and Wake. And our project is about improving food access and looking at all the things that affect families' abilities to feed their families. Things like work schedules and children's preferences and behaviors and money, time, lots of things. How did you choose which mothers you would talk to? We interviewed 120 mothers, and all of them are within 200% of the poverty line or below. And all of them have at least one child between two and eight. And so we just, we recruited them in lots of ways. Some by word of mouth, some by different community-based organizations. It took a long time to find them and we're very grateful for their participation. What were some of the findings in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds in affecting their ability to put a home-cooked meal on the table? So um, the the cooking part of the study is not something we went into um, aiming to study, but it was something that emerged because it was so complicated for so many families from a variety of backgrounds. The Voices into Action study was with low-income families and working-class families, but uh, another project that we also talk about in this article is our former graduate student, Jocelyn Brenton, who's now an assistant professor at the college. She interviewed middle-class mothers, 30 middle-class mothers. So we had moms with lots of different situations, different in terms of time and money and things like that. And one thing that was surprising was that for all of the moms, cooking was a stressful, difficult experience. And in our article, we talk about three things that really complicated it. One was time. So for the working class moms, a lot of them worked in jobs with non-standard hours, like at McDonald's or something like that. And so they wouldn't know their hours until maybe the night before. 
And then they'd have to scramble to figure out how they were going to get to work, who's going to take care of their kids. So this made it very difficult to have these home-cooked meals, like the experts tell us. For the middle-class moms, they were more likely to have a more 9-to-5 kind of job, and they often had a partner to help them out, but they'd still be getting home at 6 o'clock and scrambling to get everything on the table while the kids clamored for their attention. The time was hard for everyone. Money, um, surprisingly, was an issue for everyone, too, although in very different ways. For the poor and working-class moms, in a lot of cases, it was almost impossible to, to make these ideal meals that the experts tell us we should be having. This is partly because of the cost of healthy ingredients. There was a study last year or the year before that found that to make meals considered healthy with things like lots of whole grains and lean meats and fruits and vegetables, it would cost an average of $550 extra per year per person in the household than less healthy meals. So that's a lot of money. But it wasn't just money. Another factor was that a lot of the moms, especially the ones in Wake County, didn't have access to reliable transportation. And so they were shopping maybe once a month. And if you shop once a month, you're not going to buy a lot of fresh produce because it's just going to go bad. And so that also made it difficult. And then some of the moms uh, lived in very small apartments or houses with small kitchens. They didn't necessarily have chairs for everyone to sit down to at the table. They didn't necessarily have even basic kitchen equipment, so that made it difficult, too. We even interviewed one mom who's living in a hotel, and so in those kind of circumstances, it's going to be very hard to do what what the experts tell us um, we should be doing in terms of, of home-cooked meals. What One thing that surprised us is that the middle-class moms um, talked about money, too, although it was very different, and what they talked about was that they still didn't have the money to buy all of the things that they felt would they wanted to to feed their families the very best. And then um, one additional thing that we found for all the families, too, was how difficult it is to cook for lots of people, um, kids and husbands. And we observed a lot of meals because in addition to doing the interviews with 150 families total, we also did observations over a one-month period with 12 families, which meant we watched, um, we observed as they were eating a lot of their meals and making their meals. And there were almost no meals that we observed where at least one person didn't complain about the food. So that was difficult for all the families. But again, it's sort of how it affected them was a bit different. For the middle-class families, they were working really hard because they felt it was important to develop their kids' palates. Sometimes they would sneak uh, healthy ingredients into the foods, and there's some cookbooks that show you how to do that, and and so that was kind of how they dealt with it. For the poor and working class moms, they really couldn't afford to waste food if someone rejected it. So what that meant is that they would make a lot of the same things over and over again, often relying on a lot of processed foods because that was better than risking wasting food um, because a kid or or another family member wouldn't eat it. What do you think has caused this? ideology that kids need to have these home-cooked meals and what has caused you think the shift from you know mothers have started working now do you think that kind of plays into that role or when did this whole change take place that hey this is seriously a problem it's hard to get a home-cooked meal on the table that's a good question and it's a complicated question uh because one thing is that I just wanted to point out is that the families that we interviewed by and large were cooking almost every day. It wasn't that they were eating fast food. 
for the poor families, even though there's this image of poor families that's eating a lot of fast food, um, they couldn't afford to do that, so they cooked at home almost every day. And for the middle-class families, they probably could have afforded it, but they thought it was important to cook at home, so they also cooked at home. So on average, the people that we interviewed were cooking between four and five nights per week. At the same time, though, there is this, we hear a lot in the media from famous chefs and food gurus like Michael Pollan and and Mark Bittman that, you know, we need to cook. It's not just that we need to cook at home. It's also that we need to cook the right foods at home. We need to cook from scratch. We don't know how to do that. And um, I think that there's a few reasons for that. They sometimes imply that it's it's a matter of priorities and you know michael pollan points out that we have time to watch tv shows about cooking but we don't actually cook but i don't think that really tells the whole story because um mothers and fathers have less free time than they did in the 1960s it's partly because of mothers working but it's also partly because people are spending more time with their kids so we spend parents spend more time with their kids and more quality time, like more time playing and reading with them than even stay-at-home mothers did in the, in the 60s. So, so that's something that people don't talk about. Um, and, and that is tied to a shift in, in messages about what we need to do to be good parents or good mothers, and that has really ramped up. So parents are now expected to enroll their kids in lots of educational activities and spend lots of time playing with them and teaching them and cooking home-cooked meals and making Halloween costumes from scratch or making Halloween costumes themselves. And it's really ramped up, and that's just an impossible standard to meet, and this is part of it. So I think it is a complicated thing. And um, the mothers that we interviewed, they are cooking And they're cooking a lot, and a lot of them actually said they like cooking in theory, although it's hard to do on a day-in, day-out kind of basis. But at the same time, a lot of them felt that they were never measuring up. Now, does this study also apply to the father's role in providing home-cooked meals, and how does it also relate to people of upper-class, more richer economic levels? The question about the father, we've had a lot of people ask us about that. Um, We decided to interview mothers because even though there have been a lot of changes in terms of gender roles and household labor, it's still the case that in most families, women are doing most of the work that's needed to put food on the table, which of course is cooking, but also work that's sometimes harder to see um, what sociologist Marjorie DeVault called the invisible work of feeding a family, and that includes planning the meals and shopping for it and cleaning up afterwards. And it's still the case that um, women spend more time and are more likely to be doing that work. And in the households that we interviewed, that was also the case. There really weren't that many households where the fathers were involved, and we also interviewed a lot of single-parent families. Um, That said, we are hoping to expand our study in the spring and interview the dads, too. And and that's something I'm really excited about because I'd like to hear. We're going to talk to the moms again and the dads and hear how do they talk about feeding their family? What are the ways that that it overlaps and what are the ways that they talk about it kind of differently? As far as um, really upper class families, I guess um, I don't really know. The families that Jocelyn interviewed were middle class but some of them made quite a bit of money, but they also had a lot of costs. And so, I, but, but really, I don't know the answer to that question. That's completely fine. 
Do you have any ideas for solutions for middle class and lower economic families in providing a home cooked meal? Well, I think one of the big, um, one of the really important takeaway points is that if if it is important that people be able to feed your, feed their families, um, whatever that means to them, then there are a lot of things that need to be addressed that really don't. Uh, look like they have anything to do about with cooking and those are some of the things we should be focusing on things like hours and schedules for for workers and service jobs especially things like food access in one of the neighborhoods in our study um the only grocery store had left so that makes it difficult to get um healthy and affordable food on a daily basis and things like wages um if a family has to work if people have to work two jobs that are close to minimum wage just to stay afloat, then that's going to make it difficult. So those are some of the big things that I think we need to think about. And sometimes when people are talking about food justice and cooking, they they focus specifically on the food, but there are a lot of things related to wages and hours and things like that that also need to be addressed. But um, a second thing that we pointed out is that, you know, if this is important to people, and it seems like it is because we've gotten a lot of attention, both positive and negative from this, article people are really fired up about it and people really have a lot to say about it if this is important let's broaden the conversation and instead of um continuing to tell individual mothers and fathers what they could do better a lot of the responses have said well why don't you try a crock pot why don't you try this and those are good ideas and a lot of the families in our study did use different strategies like that but in addition and instead of telling mothers and fathers what they could do better to use their time more wisely and make more time for cooking. Let's think about um, expanding the conversation outside of the kitchen, the, the individual home kitchen, and thinking about creative solutions. And we don't have the answers to that. Um, we kind of just threw out some ideas at the end, like healthy food trucks or community kitchens or takeaway meals from schools. And But we really don't have the answers, but... We think it's great that so many people are talking about food, but we need to broaden the conversation and and start thinking, how can we make sure that families are able to sit down with each other at the end of the day and eat good food in a way that doesn't just increase the burden on already tired and stressed mothers and fathers? So say members of the community agree that these would be viable solutions. Who would you talk to to go about implementing these solutions? Would it be a government figure or someone lower in the community? Do you have any ideas on this? I don't. Um, you know, because cause those, those may very well may not be the, the solutions. Those are just ideas. And um, But one thing that I have noticed is that, you know, there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk in the newspaper, on TV about cooking and about how we need to be cooking more and a lot of messages being sent to mothers especially but also parents in general that you know a lot of the problems with our food system are related to the fact that we don't cook anymore and so i think that the problems with this food system there are there are many that have nothing to do with cooking that have to do with the price of food and things like that so that's the first thing and i think that's really important But if this is true, let's start by having a conversation about it and figure out what matters to people and how they think would make it, you know, what matters to people, what their priorities are, and then we can talk about how it might be funded or who might be in charge. Where did this interest for this study start? 
Um, well, I've been studying food for a long time, although a lot of my previous work was more on the agricultural production side and farming. And Seneca has studied families and gender for a long time. And we both came to NC State the same year, and our work really didn't overlap a lot when we started. She had studied um, sexuality and talking about sex with parents and kids. And um, I had studied local food systems in Mexico and France. But we started talking, and we said... I think this is something that a lot of people haven't looked at, at really looking at talking to families and looking at how complicated it is to feed kids. And so we wrote a proposal and we got it funded. And so now we're doing this project. What would you say to students who are interested in this project? I don't know if they can help you with the research, but in just helping to solve this problem. Well, there is... um, they can take food and society. It's a new class. It's um, I've taught it as a special topic, and my colleague Michaela DeSusi, who's also in sociology, has taught it as a special topic. But now, um, starting in the spring, it's officially listed. So it's food and society. We would love it to have students get involved with that. And um, when I have taught it, which I'll probably be teaching it again next year, um, my students have been involved in the research. They collected data on um, stores and, you know, in terms of healthy options and not healthy options and comparing prices. And I was really excited in last spring, which is the last time I taught it, because I was able to present the data that my students collected at a meeting of the state legislature on food deserts and also in an op-ed in the NNL. So um, I think there are a lot of ways. The students at NC State are doing really great things in terms of um, the food system. The farmer's market on campus was started by an undergraduate student, too, and there's so much going on. Um, There's also the new agroecology program over in crop science. So there's really a lot going on. And if any students want to talk to me about it, I would love to talk to you. Thanks, Sarah. Is there anything else that you would like to add? No. Um, Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Sarah Wad. Thanks for that great story, Sarah. If you have some particular feedback on that last piece or you want to share some of your own experience with us or other listeners, feel free to tweet at us at WKNC underscore EOT. Next, Michaela has a special report on the new voting registration laws taking effect soon right here in North Carolina. If you're not sure whether or not this affects you, have a listen. Voting in North Carolina has become so much more complicated than what you previously thought back in the fifth grade. There are new laws and inactive voter increases from dead people North Carolina voters have until October 10th to make sure they're registered to vote in their home precinct. Changes to the election laws brought about by the state's new voting law passed last year eliminate same-day registration and also a voter's ability to cast a ballot in a precinct other than their own on election day. Picture IDs are no longer required. U.S. District Court Judge Tom Schrodinger declined the grant preliminary injunction against the state's new voting restrictions because he said the plaintiffs have not demonstrated that they are likely to suffer irreparable harm. An expedited appeal to block the new restrictions before the midterms will be heard by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in Charlotte on September 25th. Since 2007, there has been a 62% increase in inactive voters. This has probably been because there were 30,000 registered voters who were dead during elections. But there are still 700,000 other voters that are missing, and pollsters don't know where they're at. North Carolina law requires election officials to complete two mailings to voters at their registration address without response before removing inactive voters from the polls. It's really easy to register to vote and to select a sample ballot. 
It can all be done online. It's really, really easy, and it's really important to vote at midterms at the local level because it can directly affect you on who your county commissioner is and who you elect for your General Assembly senator, and not to mention you have the national level. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Michaela O'Connor. Thanks, Michaela. And now, here are the campus happenings for the following week. Talk to me, so you can see. Here's what's going on at NC State. Tomorrow, Dr. Funes, a leading scientist in agroecology, will be on campus giving a talk. The esteemed expert will be promoting agroecology and the Cuban model. Catch the lecture in room 2223 of Williams Hall at 10 a.m. Also tomorrow, the major exploration series presents its highlight of environmental science. The series involves several information fairs that feature each of the colleges here at NC State, helping students who are unsure about their majors gain information about the various majors and minors available at NC State. The event will take place from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. in the First Year College Commons, Room 108. Thursday, NCSU Libraries presents the next in its amazing alumni series. This event features Josh Katz, the creator of the dialect heat maps and surveys that became widely popular last year. The interactive dialect map became the New York Times' most visited piece of content for 2013. Katz now works at The Upshot, a Times site that combines statistics with data visualization to help readers better understand complicated news stories. Katz will discuss his career trajectory and how data visualization is improving researchers' ability to convey complex information to the public. The event will take place from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. in the D.H. Hill Auditorium. The Equal Opportunity Institute, now in its second decade at NC State, is an award-winning program of workshops tailored to individual needs in the areas of diversity and equal opportunity. The EOI was just recognized again by the 2014 Insight into Diversity Higher Education Excellence in Diversity Awards. An orientation for the program will take place Friday from 1 to 3 in Tally Student Union. To apply to participate, visit oied.ncsu.edu. Later on Friday evening, the NC State Women's Center will be hosting its 11th annual Chocolate Festival for Breast Cancer Awareness and Research. Having been a huge success in previous years, the festival honors NC State coach Kay Yao and many others who have lost their lives to breast cancer. Tickets are available at oied.ncsu.edu. chocolate Also Friday evening, the first in the Independent Film Archive's AV Geeks series will be at the Hunt Library. NC State alumnus Skip Elsheimer joins forces with NC State faculty members to present and discuss rare and classic vintage classroom films, new reels, and documentaries spanning the last 80 years. The event will begin at 6 p.m. at the Hunt Library Commons Wall on the fourth floor. Saturday, the NC State football team takes on Presbyterian at 6 p.m. The team is currently undefeated with three games under its belt so far. Next Monday marks the beginning of the 6th Annual Pinhole Camera Photography Challenge Exhibition. View the best photographs from the competition and help select the People's Choice winner by voting for your favorite. The exhibition may be viewed during the NC State Craft Center's regular operating hours. Visit the Craft Center website for more information. Next Monday at 2 p.m. is the Bhutan Conservation Seminar. Two of Bhutan's leading conservation scientists will visit campus and lead a seminar titled The Last Himalayan Refugia, Insights into Bhutan from a Conservation Standpoint. The Kingdom of Bhutan, which is a third the size of North Carolina, has twice as many species of birds and mammals as our state, with new species still being discovered. It's a biodiversity hotspot where iconic species that are endangered everywhere else on the planet, including snow leopards and tigers, persist without persecution. 
This weekend at the Campus Cinema, the movies Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, A Million Ways to Die in the West, and 22 Jump Street will be showing. Visit uab.ncsu.edu slash films hyphen schedule for times. For more information on these events and more, visit ncsu.edu slash calendar. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. This week, we'd like to add that WKNC will be hosting its first Fridays on the Lawn of this fall semester, so if you're looking for some good music here on campus, head on out to Harris Field in front of Witherspoon Student Center from 5 to 7 this Friday. And as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, you can let us know and tweet at us at WKNC underscore EOT, where you can also catch up on some more local news. Be sure to check out our blog at blog.wknc.org, where you can also download our podcast. After Hours is up next, and you can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next week right here on WKNC. We'd like to thank our international news correspondent, Sydney Bloom, and contributors, Sarah and Michaela. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Nick Savage. Good night. Thank you.